I recently shared a video with a friend. It was a video of me on my mountain bike hitting a jump at Brandywine Creek State Park. It's the largest jump that I've hit to date, and I got a decent bit of air. It, he, in response to the video, called me a daredevil, and he said I was a mess. But he was glad that I was enjoying myself. Now, I'd be lying to say that I was not a bit terrified going down that hill. The trail is called Jedi Knight, and I honestly felt much more like a, a Padawan, a, a little Jedi in training. But when I made it, my confidence was boosted, and it did help because I had recently purchased knee and elbow pads. So as I was going down, I felt more confident. See, falling is part of mountain biking. It's just what you do. You fall. It's a guarantee. But having the, the pads helped boost my confidence a bit so that... I'm able to try new things without as much fear. So maybe my friend is right. Maybe I am a mess, but I am having fun. But here's my point in this. There are countless things for us to be fearful and terrified of today. Some of those things are natural things, like going down the hill and seeing a big couple-foot jump right before you when you're going pretty fast. Some of those fears are sinful fears. So the question that I want us to ask this morning is really, what helps you to overcome those fears? See, it doesn't really matter what the object of your fear is. It could be catching the virus. It could be passing on the virus to loved ones. It could be fear of other people in many different facets. It could be fear of being despised or hated by others because you are different, maybe even because of the color of your skin. It could be fear of yourself, fear that you would do something foolish in, in a moment of depression or inwardness. It could be fear of being all alone or fear that no one listens or no one really cares. See, there are countless different objects to our fear. There are many different objects of fear as there are unique people. So today I'm not so worried about what we are afraid of, but what we are to do when we fear. Let me rephrase the question. How do we handle fear? What are we as God's people supposed to do when we fear? In other words, is there an antidote to fear? Let me offer this, what I believe is a biblical response to fear. Revival is an antidote to fear. Revival is an antidote to fear. See, we desperately need to know that the Spirit of God is present with us and that the Lord Himself assures us of our eternal future. See, in many ways, in many respects, revival is simply a deeper awareness that God is for us, a deeper awareness that God is with us, the Spirit is with us, awareness, a deep manifestation and awareness that nothing, as Jesus says in John 6, can pluck us out of the Father's hands. How desperately we as a people today need the Spirit of God to be poured out at this time. How desperately we need revival to quench our fears. The people of Israel needed this awareness as well in Isaiah 44 verses 1 through 8. Isaiah continues with this focus on why we must not fear. See, last week in Isaiah 43, we saw the Lord command them twice, do not fear. And each command was wrapped in a promise. The first one, do not fear because I promise you my salvation. The second one, do not fear because I promise you my presence. This morning, we're going to look at, again, that one command made twice, wrapped up in two additional promises. The first one is this, fear not, for I will pour out my spirits. 
The second, fear not, because there is no God like me. Let's read Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 8 this morning. God's holy word says this, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And are you my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? No, there is no rock. I know not any. There is no reason for the people of God to fear because the Lord has given us his spirit. And we must not fear because our God is the one and only true God. There is no God like him. He alone is able to fulfill all that he promises. So the message for us this morning is clear. Fear not, for I have given you the spirit of all comfort. If we want an antidote to fear, if there is such a thing that exists, it is this. Fear not, for the Lord our God, the one who is none, like no other, says this. I have given my spirit of comfort. Let's look at the first point this morning. Fear not, I the Lord declares, I will pour out my spirit. In verses 1 to 5, look at those again. Fear, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on this thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Isaiah calls upon the people of the Lord to hear, to listen, to pay attention. The Lord, speaking through the prophet, reminds them, you are chosen. I, the Lord, have chosen you. I have formed you from birth. Isaiah echoes the words of David, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. In short, the Lord is saying this, I know you, and you are mine. As we saw last week from chapter 3, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Why? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. 
See, the Lord declares his covenant love for his people. I am your God and you are my people. Because the Lord is our God and we are his people, he promises us help. I have chosen you. I have made you. I have formed you from the womb. And I will help you. See, the promise of help is given, but how does it come? See, help comes when the Lord pours out his spirit. The Lord promises his people the spirit in Isaiah, and Jesus promises us the spirit in the Gospel of John. I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. See, Jesus promises his people that he will not leave them as orphans. He will send a helper who will dwell with us and within us. If we go back to Isaiah 44, we see that verse 3 is a parallelism. This is how Hebrew does poetry, or modern translations do a good job of showing this off. In this case, lines 1 and 2 are then mirrored by lines 3 and 4. Look at line 1. The Lord pours out water on a thirsty land. That paralyzed the third line. The Lord pouring out his spirit upon Israel's offspring. So what it's saying is saying the same thing. When God pours out water on a thirsty land, He is pouring out His Spirit upon His thirsty people. And like water poured upon a dry land, the Spirit poured out as a blessing upon Israel's descendants. And this is good news, for as Paul argues in Galatians, all who believe in Christ are descendants of Abraham and Israel. In Christ, brothers and sisters, we receive the blessings of the Spirit poured out. Joel picks up on the promise of this Holy Spirit in Joel 2, verses 28 to 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. For Isaiah and for Joel, the Spirit being poured out was future. It was something that they were looking forward to for us It is past tense. It is historical. It is something we look back upon. In the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, Luke tells us this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pause for a moment to consider this. Consider the length of time between Isaiah and that day of Pentecost. Isaiah prophesying in the 8th century, almost some 750 years later, Jesus then comes on the scene. Then after his life, after his death, after his resurrection. Then and only then, days later, is the Spirit of God poured out. God's timing is most certainly not our timing. We always need to keep that in perspective. See, the result of the Spirit being poured out is nothing short of life. Look at verse 4. 
When a dry and thirsty land receives water, it gives life. There is growth. The Lord's people are described as growing up among the grass, like willows by flowing streams. The Spirit gives life, and the man or woman is blessed. They are planted like a tree by streams of water. They yield fruit in the right season, and their leaf does not wither. In all that they do, the people of God who received the life-giving power of the Spirit prosper. Renewal, vitality, life. But the Spirit of God doesn't just give us life. The Spirit also gives us assurance of that life. Look at verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And the name himself by the name of Israel. See, this is the work of the Spirit of God. That the Spirit helps us know that we are God's children. The Spirit will enable us to write on our hand the Lord's. Just like Woody in Toy Story. On the bottom of his, of his boot, he had the name written Andy. Why? Because he was Andy's toy. Whenever Woody had a moment of doubt or was filled by fear, what did he have to do? He would just turn up his boot, look, and see the name stamped upon it, Andy. He had, because of that, on the bottom of his boot, the assurance that he was Andy's, that he was loved, that he was cherished. For all who believe and trust in the Lord, we have the name of the Lord emblazoned on our hearts, indeed our entire lives. When doubt and fear enter into our minds, we need to look into the Word of God. We need to see the stamp of the Lord written upon our hearts that says, You are mine. I am your God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have loved you from before the foundations of the world. Before I spoke and created all, I set my love and affection upon you. My love is so great for you that I sent my one and only beloved son to die a cruel death. A death you deserved. A death you should have received. Died upon a wretched, cruel Roman cross. But in power and might, the Spirit of God raised Jesus to life on the third day. And because of this, you are mine. Nothing will pluck you from my hands. The Father assures it. The, Jesus assures it. The Spirit assures it. He has given you to me, the Father says. This gospel assurance is the work of the Spirit of God. So if we circle back to the command, fear not. The Lord says, fear not, for I will pour out my Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Lord, our covenant-loving God, has given us His Spirit. He has given us His life, and He assures us always of our life. The Spirit tells us we are the Lord's. The Spirit whispers to our spirit that we are God's children, so we can cry out to our Father. We are His people. He is our God. We are precious, loved, and cherished In short, the Spirit reminds us that we are God's and that God, our covenant-keeping God, is for us. Therefore, we have no reason to fear. After Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, he told this to his disciples. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus has left his peace with us. 
He has given us the Spirit of God, our helper and comfort, the Spirit poured out upon us and speaks to you and to me in this time of fear. And what does the Spirit of God say? Peace to you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Let not your hearts be troubled. The second point is this. Fear not, for there is no God like me. Look at verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I am appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. I've told, have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. The same command wrapped up in a different promise. Fear not. For I am the Lord, and there is no God beside me. It's a promise, but it's also a bold declaration. There is no God like me. The Lord is declaring His absolute sovereign Lordship. I am the King of all kings. I am the King of Israel. I am the Redeemer. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the first, the Alpha, the last, the Omega. Besides me, there is no God. And then he challenges everyone to a contest. Who is like me? Go and find someone. Anyone. Anyone. Bueller. Bueller. Anyone. I challenge you. Is there anyone who can be like me at all? It's a vain challenge. For there is none like the Lord. See, the Lord declares His uniqueness because He alone is able to foretell the future. And He alone is able to carry out the future. Why? Because He is the sovereign Lord. And that is exactly what He has done in verses 1-5. to He has foretold the future coming of the Holy Spirit. God's people have nothing to fear because what the Lord declares will always come to be. Now the timing may be way off from our perspective But it always happens. He speaks and it comes into existence. There is no other who is able to declare the future and fulfill such promises. In verses 19 to 20, which we're not going to spend a lot of time with this morning, is a remarkable detail of the folly of idolatry. All who make idols are nothing, Isaiah says, just like the idols they craft with their own hands. How remarkable an ironsmith fashions an idol. He plants a tree. The rain sent by the Lord nourishes the tree. The tree grows up. The man cuts down the tree. He uses some of the wood for fuel. He uses some of the wood to make a fire. And he takes another part of the wood to make an idol. He crafts it into an idol and falls down before it. The same wood he used to stay warm, the same wood he used to bake food. And he prays to this idol, Deliver me, for you are my God. And Isaiah's point is what foolishness. What can a piece of wood know? They know not, nor they discern. For he, the Lord, has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. There's a blindness to idolatry. They're unable to process that they just use a part of this tree for firewood. They just use another part of this tree to bake food. And now they are praying to the other third. 
Their hearts are deluded. And this is the folly of idolatry. But we as a people must not be too quick to mock the foolish idolaters while failing to see that our own hearts are idol-making factories, to borrow Calvin's phrase. The sinful fear exists in our hearts when we fail to set Jesus apart as Lord of our lives, when we erect other gods, other lesser gods, other idols. See, the problem is we have almost an idolatrous view of God. We have a very small view of God. In essence, it's an idolatrous view of the Lord. When we fear and are overwhelmed by fear, our view of God is too small, far, far too small. When we grasp with our entire being, though, that our Lord, the one who created, sustained, and redeemed us, the one who calls us by name, the one who calls us son or daughter, is the same God who is infinitely great. When we grasp that there is no one besides our God, it's like riding on a mountain bike with knee and elbow pads. Our confidence is boosted, and it should be. So much more. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but if we're going to beat a dead horse, this is it. You cannot get any better as a follower of Christ than hearing these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for you, then nothing can separate you from his love. This God who is unique, who is beyond all, who is above all, who is powerful, mighty, glorious, joy-giving, life-giving, this God, this unique God, there is no God like our God, the rock. Should we as God's people ever grow tired of hearing this truth? But I'm sure that if you are like me, you have countless times that just in this past week alone have forgotten that you no longer are under condemnation because of God and Christ Jesus. How desperately we need to to be reminded that our Lord is the Lord. There is no one like him. He is the Lord of all lords, King of all kings, and he is our God and we are his people. And his spirit is upon us. Why? Do we fear? If this doesn't boost our confidence, then I do not know what will. This life-giving spirit that is within us, that assures us that we are saved, redeemed, that assures us that our God is unlike any other God, gives us renewal and vitality and life. This is nothing but revival. So as I end, I want to ask this question. Maybe try to answer it. Should we, as the people of God, continue to pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out? I'm going to answer that with a yes and a no, depending on what you mean when you actually talk about the Spirit of God being poured out. No. No, because the Spirit has already been poured out. He is with us right here and right now. He is present with the Lord's people. He is the Spirit of the church who is with the church. He isn't going to get poured out any more than He's already been poured out. What happened on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago is a unique event in redemptive history. And now today, all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have the Spirit of God living, working, and moving within them. The Spirit is present with us now. But yes, in the sense that we long for a deeper awareness of the Spirit's presence and power within us. This is nothing less than calling out to the Lord for revival to send the Spirit upon us. 
the British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones is helpful here. Listen to what he writes in his book, Revival. He's talking about the blessing of God, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, It is a desire to have a very living and real consciousness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. Oh, we know the Holy Spirit is in the church. The Holy Spirit has been in the church since the day of Pentecost. Yes, but what we are asking for is not simply that we may know or be aware of the fact that the Spirit is in the church, but that this may be demonstrated and manifested to us in such a way that every doubt or hesitation is gone. It is for a clear manifestation of the Spirit. This is what we pray for when we ask the Spirit to come down. This is what we long for. What will wash away our fears? Nothing but the power of the Spirit of God working in hearts to convict us of our sins and to comfort us from our fears. What we need is a living and real consciousness of the Spirit's already presence in us. To that end, we pray that the Spirit of God would pour Himself out into our hearts and minds so that we would grasp with a fresh, clear, and powerful awareness that, brothers and sisters, as God's Word declares, our God is with us. Spirit of God, we come to you. Make your presence felt among us. Father, pour out your Spirit upon us. Remind us of the fact that the Spirit is already present, that we already, that you, Jesus, have promised to never leave nor forsake us, and that your promise of that is your Spirit. May we know and feel and grasp that you are our God, the eternal one who has set your love and affection upon us. You have loved us with an eternal love. We are your beloved children. Help us not to just accept this truth, but to truly believe it to the point where it radically alters our way of life. May we fear less because we are fearfully known. May we hope more because we are yours. You have stamped your name upon us. You have declared us to be yours because we are loved and precious in your sight. Jesus, give us that gospel assurance, that promise that you, because of your death and resurrection, that you have stamped your name upon us. Allow the Spirit to work in our hearts and minds so that we don't only just process that with our heads, but believe it with our hearts and live in accordance with it. Thank you, Jesus, for being our great Redeemer, our eternal Advocate. And it's in your great and mighty and glorious name, our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen.